0: For Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, I'm Nick Kennan, and this is SciVibe.
1: I truly believe in multidisciplinary research and the diversity. The the greatest papers I've ever read, the the best research are coming from people of diverse backgrounds. And that's when the real science is made. And that's what I believe in. And that's what I try to foster in my own research and in my own team.
0: Science, technology, scientific discovery. This is SciVibe. Great show today. We have Svetlana Volkova, a chief scientist at PNL in data sciences and analytics. Svetlana was selected to be part of a world-class team of organizers behind the National Academies of Science workshop on pivotal interfaces of environmental health and infectious diseases to inform responses to outbreaks, epidemics, and pandemics. Svetlana, thanks for coming on the show today.
1: You're welcome. My pleasure.
0: (laughs) Oh, man, it's so good to have you on SciVibe. I know the last time we talked back in June of 2019, we touched a little bit on social media misinformation and how it spreads. And my gosh, there's been a lot of information to come out since then on that topic. And we're going to talk about that today again and how that relates to your workshop. But first, I want to know, why is your research important to national security?
1: So the research that um, I and my team are doing is using artificial intelligence to develop models that are capable of describing, predicting, and prescribing human social systems and behavior and address different challenges, specifically national security challenges in the human domain. And this ranges from disinformation, cybersecurity, proliferation, um, you name it.
0: Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. And, And we're talking now because of the NAS workshop on this very topic. How is your work in AI and social media relevant to this field of study in predicting and informing decision-makers about the spread of infectious diseases?
1: It's relevant from multiple angles. To start, we have published research on predicting influenza outbreak dynamics over um, different locations in the US and abroad. And these models that are AI-driven and specifically deep learning models they showed the better performance than traditional machine learning models. And there are multiple reasons for that. One is that the techniques are better, statistical inference is better. And two is that we're relying on this non-traditional big data sources. So instead of just relying on signals from the past, we are looking into um, social media data, for example. And that's how this research is related to the workshop that I'm helping to co-organize. That's great. So um, during the workshop, we will have speakers who will be talking about these non-traditional data sources that include Google searches, mobility data, cell phone data, and human behavioral data, actually. And this is really important in general and became really evident that the importance of monitoring human behavioral data during the pandemic because there, there is one thing when you uh, try to forecast the number of deaths or the number, the number of available hospitals from the historical data, but there is another signal that you can get whether people are complying with policies and interventions and people are staying home and people are not traveling. And you can only get this human behavioral data from open data sources like social media or mobility data or Google searches, right? So that's really important to include in predictive modeling.
0: It's really fascinating work. And, you know, to sort of explain this to the the average person, this data is anonymous and yet it's public. So that is to say, when you're there, you're not looking at specific people or data about the people. It's really just the information that they're relying in a public venue.
1: Absolutely. All of it is uh, anonymized, right? And we're making conclusions and inferences on the aggregate. So specifically for the state or for the country. Right. So absolutely. We are using privacy preserving machine learning techniques.
0: Right. So when you look into this data and just as an example, if I'm on Twitter and I use Twitter a lot, I love Twitter. And uh, let's say I, I talk about our tweet, the fact that I can't get into the ER for a COVID test and it's really late and I need one. Will you find this information? You would just say, see it as I'm a male. And any other information that I've offered up myself publicly, which I put on my profile, Richland, Washington, which is where I live, and maybe uh, ER, and then some of the data surrounding it. Is that how it works?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're looking into um, properties of the users and, and that are publicly available, like the location. Uh, we also infer different uh, other psychodemographics, like gender, income, uh, age, for example, from the language that the person is using. And in addition to that, we're also looking into the content properties. So you said the ER, for example, that you're interested in COVID testing and you're interested in ER. Um, We're also looking into automatically predicting your emotions and perceptions. What are you feeling? Are you positive or are you negative? Are you angry? We also look, look into reactions, which means that... If there is a policy from the governor, for example, uh, to wear masks and, and whether you are complying with the policy or you're questioning the policy or you have a negative or positive reaction.
0: It's so interesting. And I can see how that's totally available by Twitter because of the way people speak in that method, particularly. I mean, I guess because I'm so familiar with it. Your work has shown, though, that social media data alone is as good as historical data in predicting infectious diseases spread and that the two are combined are a better predictive tool. So what does data from open sources such as social media bring to the models of infectious disease spread that is missing in the historical data?
1: It brings this human aspect that is very hard to get and very hard to measure. Um, And you're right, we showed that if you only relying on social media data, it's not as accurate as the historical data, uh, by itself, but e- in the absence of the historical data, you could totally rely on the social media data, right? On the social data, and you can um, you can see the dynamics. So you can see in real time what people are discussing and e- see the effects of the discussions on the outcome variable that you're measuring. For example, for the flu or for COVID.
0: Okay, that's really good to know. You know, for perspective. Your current work includes the watch owl modeling project to better understand the effectiveness of the interventions to prevent the spread of COVID-19. What has surprised you from this work or what have you learned about social behavior related to interventions, for example?
1: Multiple things. So we built a tool, honestly, in under two months. We had the models pre-trained and uh, we just applied them to this use case that was really urgent. And what amazed me is that how the team was able to build the solution and deploy the solution so fast. And then the usefulness of of the tool, right? So the tool can help the governor in real time to decide whether to lift the policy or to keep the policy, right? So in real time, the the decision-maker can see how people are reacting um, and what are their perceptions and perspectives regarding a specific policy, right, or interventions. And we were able to do it over multiple states and and build this tool that allows you to do this contrastive analysis. So, for example, one, one insight that we noticed is the differences across states. We see that some states are more positive than other states, and you see the dynamics and the progression. We could also see the differences across genders, demographics, ages, income. So the, so the Watch Owl tool can really provide real-time understanding and, and situational awareness during the pandemic, which is amazing.
0: It is amazing. <laughs> Watch Owl in general is just a story in and of itself, and I'm going to include a link at the end of this podcast, and I encourage you to check it out and find out more about Svetlana's work through it. Svetlana, what is uh, different about COVID-19? I know you've studied in great detail seasonal flu and other infectious diseases. Is there something different about COVID-19 and how the current pandemic has changed or altered or informed research directions going forward?
1: Absolutely. COVID was very different. I call it um, the scientists were put in the corner and we had to act fast and think fast. So with flu when we trained models, we had tons of data. We had years of data available, years of historical data, tons of social media data. And that's how we trained our models. And in order to train good deep learning models, you have to have a lot of data to get good accuracies, right? Right. But um, with COVID, there was no training data. We barely had weeks of training data. And that was really unfortunate. But what, what I said is it made us to be more creative. Instead of only looking into historical data, we really opened our minds and we said, what else can we look at? Can we look into mobile data? Can we look into mobility data? And for example, social media data in terms of interventions to measure human behavior. How about searches? So we were really creative to explore these additional non-traditional data sources that we never even thought about during flu. And each country had their own ways and their own sources they looked at, uh, which was also like very interesting. And and I think right now the scientific community is well more prepared than before COVID for sure. So we acted and we had to act and we acted fast. That's
0: really incredible. Are there instances in your past in your entire body of work in which you were constrained in one way or another like this? And you, like you say, open your minds and come to a, a different sort of way of looking at things. Are new discoveries found often in that way?
1: I would say yes. COVID was just uh, the largest uh, challenge, the biggest challenge that I personally faced as a scientist. But I think every research problem, we have to be creative solving any research problem. The hypothesis that we make when we come to a problem rarely confirm, right? And the, the data is noisy and then the method is not perfect, right? So we absolutely have to adapt on the fly. We have to think about additional methods, additional data sources we have to look in order to improve the methods. So I think it's a constant improvement, but COVID was really the biggest challenge that I faced.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I think people forget how creative scientists are, They think of you in the lab and doing only, you know what I mean? And yet you're really these highly creative beings because you need to be, like you said, in order to achieve what you achieve. How dangerous is the spread of misinformation with regard to COVID and infectious diseases and flu and all of those things that you work on?
1: It is extremely dangerous. And this is another reason I'm helping to organize this workshop. Um, so the, the damage of misinformation that is made in general, not even related to COVID, during COVID, it, it had a tremendous negative impact on our actions. And actions lead to bad consequences because there are more deaths and more sicknesses, right?
0: Yes, right.
1: So that's another pile of research that my team had been working on. So we we worked on a DARPA project for three years, and we developed a series of analytics that can, in real time, measure disinformation and misinformation spread across social platforms. So not only Twitter, but also other social platforms like YouTube and Reddit and and Telegram. Mm -hmm. And this measures very, um, you can think about the framework that my team developed to be multidimensional, and it's looking to how things spread, how people engage with disinformation. And quantitative measures of diffusion, right? How fast this information is spreading, who is spreading it, for how long it's being active, how people are engaging. And in addition to that, what are the recurrent patterns of disinformation spread? And what is the coordinated effort if there is one? And can we find this coordinated effort? And we use similar analysis that we developed under this DARPA program to measure COVID misinformation spread. And we looked for specific uh, misinformation narratives that the media and scientists identified, and we saw who is engaging with them and how they are spreading how fast and what's the consequences. But in addition to that, we applied our novel analysis, causal analysis, to really explain what spreads and what does not spread and why. Answering Mm. the question why is, is very important what affects human behavior and why people spread specific narratives but not others is an extremely challenging task. And using causality and causal discovery, we were able to answer this question. So, for example, we found that specific narratives spread faster. We are not the first people who who show that, for example, that disinformation travels faster than, than the truth. There was a science paper about it. However, my team looked into explaining why and what are the triggers, what are the properties of either the sender or the properties of the content, the message that affect the spread, the speed, the scale, the engagement level. And that's what we have been working on recently.
0: So... In, in pinpointing that, it's one way to combat misinformation, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. And are there certain, say, heavy influencers that are responsible? Or is it more so that you found in your research in the message itself and how it's said and how it's delivered?
1: Very good question. So it's both and it depends on what property of the diffusion you're looking at. It also depends on the type of the campaign. So, for example, we analyzed and contrasted the disinformation campaign in Syria which has uh, bad actors, it has coordinated effort, and we know that this is a foreign influence campaign. Um, So we see basically the senders are key players there, and the properties of the sender affects the diffusion. But in the misinformation for COVID scenario, it's a mix. So the properties of the sender and the properties of the message, for example, the sentiment of the message, affects how it spreads, how fast, how far, and so on.
0: Fascinating to me. It's just such an engrossing topic. What are you looking forward to most about the NAS workshop?
1: I am extremely honored to help to coordinate that workshop. First of all, I met people who I would never meet in my daily life. These are people from different disciplines, not AI people. They are uh, virusologists, immunologists, um, infectious disease modelers. And working with them and and working with them for the last, I think, four months preparing the workshop, I learned so much. This has been fascinating. And I'm really looking forward to the workshop because I will meet even more people with even more diverse expertise. I'm excited and pumped because we will have speakers that will bring to the table the best of the best, their best solutions to the problems like COVID and other infectious diseases, as well as their thinking and forward-looking thinking to how to become proactive and how to develop technologies right now. So we cannot be where we were with COVID a year ago. And instead, we would be more prepared and more ready to the next challenge that may be in front of us in a few years. And that's what I'm excited about. That's
0: so awesome. And I think the opportunity to work with other scientists and other disciplines opens up a part of your brain that maybe you don't always use inside that lane you're in with with your research.
1: Absolutely. I truly believe in multidisciplinary research and the diversity. The, the greatest papers I've ever read, the, the best research are coming from people of diverse backgrounds, and that's when the real science is made, and, and that's what I believe in, and that's what I try to foster in my own research and in my own team.
0: That's so great. Svetlana, how did you come to PNNL? Do
1: you want the true story? (laughs) I do. (laughs) It's a boring one. I mean, I never regretted that I came to the lab, even though the lab wasn't in my plan. I was graduating with my PhD from Johns Hopkins University and I interviewed in with the lab and I liked the team. I liked the challenge problems and I joined and it was six years ago. And that was probably one of the best decisions of my life for multiple reasons. First, because I, I met the people who I'm currently working on and this is really important to me. My team is my best asset. And then second is that I was honored to work on the problems that I'm, I have been working over this last six years, like disinformation and cybersecurity and social cybersecurity, proliferation. So the ability to build models that have direct impact on the mission and help decision makers in the field is very valuable to me. And that's what I like about PNNL.
0: Mm, that's really nice. What does it feel like to change the world?
1: But to be honest, I feel more challenged. Every time we, we deploy a solution that, is, that has impact on someone's life, whether it's at the two people scale or 10 people scale or a million people scale, I feel challenged because I know that the next solution that we deploy will be bigger, will have more impact. And that's what challenges me. And that's what drives me.
0: Mm, that's so inspiring. What do you do when you're not at the lab?
1: I spend time with my family. Um, so I have a toddler and my husband also works in the lab. We really like traveling and we, we like cooking, so we grill a lot and, and just play outside.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Okay, so back to your work, I have another question. Is social media data applicable to modeling scenarios beyond the spread of infectious diseases? Let me put it another way. Could you describe ways to use social media in AI models to safeguard critical infrastructure, such as the electric power grid from cyber or physical attacks, for example?
1: Absolutely, this is another pillar of my research that I'm currently working on. So it's not only social media data, I tend to put it into the um, under the umbrella of open source data or uh, non-traditional data sources. And let me give you two examples because I have two efforts there. The mission that we are trying to to address is non-proliferation. So the first project, which is a collaboration with the Lawrence Berkeley Lab, we are using this non-traditional open data sources to explain and inform radiological uh, sensor signals. So imagine you have a sensor in the city that is sensing radiological isotopes. Can you use open data sources like hospital visits or construction permits that are happening in the area to explain and predict eventually the radiological sensor signals. Wow,
0: that's incredible.
1: This has never been done before. And and the second project that I have to impact the non-proliferation mission is Looking into scientific publications, we have terabytes of scientific publications over many years in the nuclear domain and see how proliferation expertise is evolving across different countries globally.
0: It's really, really interesting. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you want to talk about in terms of your research?
1: So one important part of my research that we haven't touched is model evaluation. We are developing this AI driven analytics and machine learning and deep learning models. But how do they work? How are we validating them? Do we really understand how they work uh, and why they're making predictions they're making? Can we explain their predictions and can we interpret model decisions? That's another pillar of research that my team is working. Uh, We are developing metrics and, and, and evaluation approaches to evaluate machine learning and deep learning models to make sure that the end user is trusting. So we're looking into several aspects of model benchmarking, robustness of the model, how the model is working under different conditions and different adversarial scenarios. Is the model fair? This is another aspect. And can we explain model prediction? So that's these are other dimensions that when we are developing these AI models, we should be looking at. Accuracy is not enough. Accuracy is good but it's far from enough. We as model developers, we as model creators, we have to be unbiased and we have to be fair with ourselves and with the end users of the models. And if we really need to evaluate these models to make sure that they operate reliably in the field.
0: I can understand that. And I understand why it's so important. Absolutely. This has been so wonderful. And it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. We'll get uh, folks some details on that workshop and how they can get some more information on your research as well. Thank you so much for taking time with us and for coming on the show.
1: You're welcome. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to SciVibe. We're dedicated to sharing the excitement of discovery. If you had an aha moment while listening to SciVibe, please share and subscribe.